what are your habits of beginning a week? Just want you to think just for a second. What are the habits, uh, routines of beginning a week? All right, and now the conceit that I have is, what day did you think about? Did you think about Monday? Or did you think about Sunday as the beginning of the week? I'm just curious, who, who thought about Monday? Yeah, and who thought about Sunday? Oh, there's a few, okay. Um, that is a common thing to think about. Um, Monday is a work week. It's an academic week. It might be a week in which you have different routines, um, volunteering, um, caring for grandchildren, helping care for other, uh, other people's children. To start with Sunday is to start with the Lord's Day, um, a feast of the resurrection, um, a little Easter. And as you remember, with, even within the Lenten, um, or the, the Lenten season, um, Easter is always, or Sundays are always a feast day. They're like little Easters um, in the Lenten season. It's always a feast. And I wonder, um, what difference would it make um, in your life, make in my life, if I was much more conscious of it, of um, each week beginning with a feast? And I don't mean that as judgment, because um, part of my work is about worship, and so that dilemma of that tension is, I feel, I feel that, I get that. What difference would it make um, if you began your week, or consciously began your week, with a feast? Now, there are a lot of structures and um, routines and practices in this world that lead us to prioritize work over worship, um, that cause us uh, to think that, or to sort of live in such a way that we live to work rather than work um, in order, and not work in order to live. Um, but in spite of that, most of our calendars, um, at least for now, still start with Sunday as the first day of the week. And there are other origins for Sunday as being a first day of the week, um, but for Christian worship, that's a big part of it, that it's the Lord's Day. There's a long tradition within the church of setting Sunday apart as that principal day of worship, that feast, little feast, every, every week. And so um, setting that apart, that makes sense. In order to make worship um, central, it's important to have it begin at the very beginning. And so that has, um, again, long origins within Christian worship for Sunday being the first day of the week. And I know that there's an opportunity cost um, to worshiping on Sundays, in particular worshiping on Sunday afternoons. Um, children have nap times. Um, youth have homework that you might want to do or are thinking about. Um, it's just before dinner time, and so you're thinking about how do I prepare for the different things over this end of this day. And um, during football season, it does mean that you will miss watching some of the games live. Um, I'm going to be watching for like reactions within the congregation of scores and stuff like that. I don't know. So again, there is an opportunity cost, um, but each week we still, we come together, um, each of us have different things that we are setting aside in order to take up this feast of the Lord. Um, but when we do, each week, within our liturgy even, we say it is right and our duty and our joy always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so today, on a Sunday, throughout the world, in all kinds of different places, in cathedrals, in chapels made of bamboo at St. Paul's Orphanage in Thailand, which we have connections with, at um, Joshua's Church in northeastern Kenya, and even in suburban activity centers in Roseville, Minnesota. There's a sign on the outside that says activity center. I, I don't think it really gets to the sanctuary of worship. It 
We are making this sanctuary, indeed. Um, but throughout the world on Sundays, people come together to celebrate um, the Lord and observe his resurrection. Always and everywhere, we celebrate the memorial of our redemption and worship through word and sacrament. And it is right, it's our duty, and it's our joy. Like work and worship, um, I think those two words, duty and joy, which we repeat every Sunday within our liturgy, don't always naturally go hand in hand. It's hard in our postures and practice to put together duty and joy. Because joy is something that's more commonly associated with things um, that you get to do, not things that you're obligated to do. Again, joy is more often, I think, we associate things we get to do, not things that we're obligated to do. And I think um, youth, we have a lot of um, youth in the sanctuary today. You're particularly good at recognizing that dissonance, um, the difference between things you ought to do and things you get to do. And asking why um, we do things as a church, asking your parents, asking your pastors, asking others, what, what's the purpose for these things? It's an important part of your calling, um, a calling so that you can understand those things yourself, um, but also as a prompt to your elders to think more deeply about those things, to articulate um, why we do what we do, and often remember again um, why things are important, um, what, are, what are our practices. And today's Exodus reading, um, it shows that dynamic, um, that importance between the youth and the elders of the Israelites asking, why is it that we are observing this particular feast? After describing the institution of the Passover meal and the sacrifice, Moses said, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the house, uh, houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. The Passover um, was deliverance through a feast. The Passover was deliverance through a feast. Deliverance through an act of worship. It's interesting, as you take a step back from it, the feast was not a commemoration, um, but was actually the means of liberation. The feast was not merely a memorial, because it was actually how God was doing the work of liberation. Now, I'm trying to rack my brain, is there anything like that um, in civil feasts um, that commemorate something in the past? Um, Independence Day, that marks a thing in the past. Thanksgiving, Memorial Day, um, even on a personal level, um, our birthdays and our anniversaries are, again, the memorial of things past. But the Passover feast was actually the mode, the way that God was bringing about salvation. It was bringing about a present reality. It had an effect as it was being celebrated. And it would continue to be celebrated um, by God's people in an ongoing way of how God was always saving them, how God was always for them. Because in that original Passover, the Lord passed through with judgment upon the enemies of his people, and he passed over the door of those who kept the feast. He passed through the enemies of his people in judgment and passed over the people um, who kept the feast in mercy. And God, even in, in this tenth plague, told Moses God had hardened Pharaoh's heart so that even in sharing this disastrous thing that would come, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And in one night, the Egyptians, um, who at least in some way, in some generations before, had drowned 
whole generation of God's people, of the sons of the Israelites, would now lose the firstborn of whole generations within the Egyptian people. Again, these Egyptians that had drowned the people, the sons of Israel, would now lose their firstborn sons. So the Passover was deliverance in a particular point in time, but it was instituted as a perpetual feast. Continue, celebrate this feast forever, this feast of deliverance. God decreed that the Passover would be um, a liturgical new year for his people. That this would be kind of the marker, this, the very beginning of their um, liturgical, their worship identity. And so they were marked um, by the order of their worship from that time forward as people of Exodus, as people whom God had brought out of Egypt. And through that blood um, and the flesh of the Lamb, God provided a refuge for his people and nourished them for the journey ahead. He provided a refuge for his first people through the blood of the Lamb and nourished them for the journey ahead. Now, um, urban or suburban life doesn't give us much context around livestock, um, although there's more and more chickens, like backyard chickens, I think. Some of you have nodding about that. And there's a lot of turkeys, too, but those aren't really livestock. Um, but urban or suburban life, it doesn't give us lots of association um, with livestock. Um, our connections are often petting zoos or maybe the state fair. We see animals as cute and gentle, especially the ones that eat grass. Um, and if you've been to the state fair, the pens in which the people are crowded around the most are usually some kind of baby animal of some kind. Puppies or kittens or piglets or lambs. Um, this fall, I saw some goats that were tied up in St. Anthony Park outside of a gas station. <laughs> um, like grazing around a tree. And it caused quite a stir. Lots of people like doing selfies with the, with the, with the goats. That was their association. I don't know what the end of those goats was. Um, and so animals are cute. We have very sentimental association with them, especially in sort of an urban or suburban environment. But the reality, um, especially for lambs and male lambs, is that you really only need one or two mature males, uh, rams, in order to propagate a flock of sheep. Only one or two to propagate a whole flock of sheep. And so most of the other male lambs are, are slaughtered. Because while the females can bear more lambs, the best value for the male lambs is, um, is their meat. Not, you could keep them for wool, but they're much more valuable as meat. And so the males, um, historically and even today, are more of a sacrificial animal. And so when John proclaims that Jesus is the Lamb of God, um, he's not making a sentimental proclamation about lambs are cute, lambs are um, gentle, um, but he's making an association with sacrifice. Making association with a sacrificial lamb, a lamb without defect, one that is set apart unto God, one that is associated with worship, that is offered to atone for sin. Now, although there are more specific associations that John makes in his gospel with Jesus and the Passover lamb, um, John's first, John the Baptist's first testimony in this passage doesn't specify whether he's referring to the Passover or to the general sacrifice of lambs daily at the temple. 
In the Last Supper, Jesus makes that connection. Other parts in the Gospel of John are much more specific about the association with Jesus in the Passover feast. And then especially in the New Testament of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper um, on celebration of the Passover, saying, you used to think this was about me, and now, or about something else, and now it's about me. You did this in remembrance of Exodus, now do this in remembrance of me. Eat and drink, do this in remembrance of me. And so our liturgy identifies um, Jesus with the Passover lamb, and we say so each week in our liturgy, responding, therefore let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. And I wonder if we again took, stepped back and were more conscious of how we are beginning each week with a feast. Because this feast, this feast of the victory of the Lamb, it is right, it's our duty and our joy to celebrate the memorial of our redemption in the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And so we offer God um, the gifts of bread and wine. We ask him to sanctify them, to be for us the body and blood of his son, Jesus, the Lamb of God. We also offer and present ourselves that we might worthily receive, but that we ourselves might be living sacrifices unto him. We would be one body, united with him, um, kind of as I was preaching last Sunday, that we would be in the ark of Christ's church, the only way to be saved, that we might dwell in him and he in us. And now to say that, to say that there is some sort of present reality of the sacrifice, um, of the, is, does not mean to say that the cross itself is repeated, but that Jesus, who is alive, the Lamb of God, is continually offered and continually poured out for us as the life of the world, our life and the life of all who would come to him. And God, um, the one, offers his son for the sake of all the sons, rather, rather than a son that is, uh, or a lamb that is offered to cover some sons, um, he offers his own son that all of them might look upon him would be saved. In Jesus' body and blood, he offers the refuge for his people, for all who would call upon him. And then through his body, he nourishes us for each of our very distinct, unique journeys. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. But in a very real sense, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Not merely a memorial of salvation, but a feast that affects something. A feast of God's grace. And so I encourage you, be conscious, more and more conscious of that feast of victory, that you are beginning your week with a feast to nourish you for whatever lies ahead. It is right, it's our duty and our joy to give thanks to our the Father, our Creator. It's, it's right, um, our duty and our joy to be Jesus' disciples now, even though what we are is not yet what we will be. That like John, um, whose epiphany of Jesus as the Lamb of God and the Son of God came later on in years of faithful, costly ministry, that we ourselves can expect greater epiphanies of his grace. Because Jesus, again, as people follow him, he says, come and see. God's new mercies are new every morning uh, for all of his disciples. And so to close, um, I've shared this in uh, Discovering Redeemer classes. This has been a passage 
um, that's been very significant to me from C.S. Lewis. Um, it's not really an Anglican service unless somebody talks about C.S. Lewis, right? Um, but this is a letter that he wrote to his goddaughter um, before her first communion. And I'll close with just this, this encouragement that he gave to her. Don't expect, I mean, don't count on and don't demand that when you are confirmed or when you make your first communion, you will have all the feelings that you would like to have. You may, of course, but also you may not. But don't worry if you don't get them. They aren't what matter. The things that are happening to you are quite real things, whether you feel as you would wish or not. Just as a meal will do a hungry person good, even if he has a cold in the head, which will rather spoil the taste. Our Lord will give us right feelings if he wishes, and then we must say thank you. If he doesn't, then we must say to ourselves and him that he knows us best. This, by the way, is one of the very few subjects in which I feel I do know something. For years after I had become a regular communicant, receiving communion, I can't tell you how dull my feelings were and how my attention wandered at the most important moments. It is only in the last year or two that things have begun to come right, which just shows how important it is to keep on doing what you are told. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.